Hey, one more thing before you go. What do you do when you fall asleep while driving on a winding mountain road? And just before you have a head-on collision with a semi-truck, you hear someone call your name and wake you up. Do you believe the voice? Do you know who it is? Have you heard it again? We're going to answer these questions and more when we talk to our, a young lady who did just that. And it defined her life in so many ways. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. Hey, my guest in this episode is Tanya Hackney. She's a live-aboard sailor. We'll explain that. A homeschool mom of five and an author. Her current book, Leaving the Safe Harbor, The Risk and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat, is out this, well, it was out last, uh, last year, I think, 2021, so a year old. Her husband and her family have had the power to turn their ideas into reality in order to encourage others to live their lives fully and never give up on their aspirations or their dreams. She's lived aboard, traveled, and written for the Take Two Sailing blog for more than a decade, overcoming her fear to pursue a dream, faith, and spirituality, and she's going to show you how you can do the same with an inspirational story. Welcome to the show, Tonya. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me and giving me an opportunity to share a little piece of our story. I, you know, you have an amazing journey, and I think that you live an amazing life. You, I think, give your children a very unique perspective of the world uh, and how you do it. So, um, kudos for that. Thank you very much for. Uh, I, I, I'm a father. Uh, I appreciate that when you when you broaden your children's experiences in life to expand and learn other cultures firsthand, and you don't have to read it out of a book. So, uh, thank you. Well done. Thank you. It's a gift that keeps on giving. I mean, it, it was certainly a gift that we gave ourselves, but I'm realizing as we launch our teenagers that it was a gift that we gave them too. The travel is the best education. It is. I Homeschooling think that, aside, just the travel alone was good education. Yeah, we, um, it, it, uh, just a, a note that we, uh, we, when my kids were in, um, would be, well, here, I get, I get a little confused. Arizona or Colorado, you have one through six is elementary, seventh, eighth, and ninth is junior high, tenth, eleventh, twelfth is high school. You come down here to Arizona, and it's elementary school all the way up through eighth grade, and then you're in high school. There is no junior high. But before we left Colorado, my oldest, when she was graduating eighth grade and going into ninth grade, they had a trip that they did. Um, the history teacher. And one of the other teachers within the, the arena, um, they took the kids to uh, Greece and to Italy uh, and Germany. It was great. It, it was an all-encompassing wow. little uh, uh, trip that allowed these kids to kind of celebrate moving into high school, give them an exploration of the world. And um, my oldest daughter loved every aspect of that. She came back and said that was the best experience that I think I've ever had. You know, at that time, of course, she was. Yeah, that's a hell of a field trip. <laughs> I never went on any field trips that cool. No, 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 no. It and it was great, but then we moved down to Arizona, and my youngest didn't get to experience that because down in here oh. they didn't have anything like that. But she has since then. We've encouraged her to take you know trips and to go places and do things. So, yeah, I think it, I think it does. It broadens your uh, ability to communicate with the world. I think. Yeah, I think even more than that, it gives you a sense that you are not identified by the country that you're from or yeah. the color of your skin or the language that you speak. You are very quickly, you realize that you are part of a, one human family and it is, it's transformative. It was transformative for all of us. I agree with that. We're all connected. Well, speaking of connected, I like to start at the beginning. Can we uh, unfold your life story? Yeah, let's do it. Um Where'd you grow up? So I was born in Colorado and uh, my dad traveled a lot for work. I, I moved away from Colorado when I was about eight, I think it must've been second grade. We moved to Texas and my dad continued to work and travel. He was in uh, urethane foam construction. He traveled all over the world and he also did local construction and things like that. Um, 
my parents' marriage was a little bit tumultuous. I wouldn't say that we, it was kind of dysfunctional uh, growing up, but there were lots of wonderful gifts that my parents gave me. And one of those gifts was road trips. And my dad loves to travel. He was, he's a world traveler and he wanted to make sure that even if we didn't have a lot of money, that we still got to you know, get out of Dodge. So we traveled all over the United States, uh, camped and just saw the national parks and big cities, did lots and lots of road trips. That's, that's and I'm a really, positive. really grateful for that. Yeah, that's a very positive thing. Did you, uh, do you have any brothers or sisters that, that uh, went with you? I have a younger brother and a younger sister, and we are, we are friends to this day, which is kind of a miracle. <laughs> Having an older sister and younger brother, I agree. <laughs> uh, sometimes that the dynamic is, well, you know, a little strange. Sometimes it works really well. Yeah, um, you know, at the time when you're fighting in the backseat, you, you, there's a lot of hatred <laughs> for siblings. But when you're adults, those are those things that you laugh about. I'm really hoping that someday our kids are going to laugh about the, you know, the boat passages that we took, the way that I laugh about our, our road trip memories. Well, there you go. I, I, from what I've read so far, I think they would. Uh, did you? Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you go to university? I did. I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, I'm a person who had uh, a list probably from the time that I was five and knew exactly what I wanted and pursued everything relentlessly. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont. I majored in English because I love to write, and I minored in French because I wanted to live in Paris. And I did a second minor in early edu early childhood education because I wanted to teach kindergarten. And I did all of the things that I wanted to do. I taught elementary school in Atlanta. I taught English as a second language. And um, I did spend a semester in Paris while I was at, uh, at Middlebury. And the language lessons have served me really, really well. I also learned Spanish. And that those two languages have helped a lot especially with our travels in the Caribbean. So, um, I, think so. Yeah, I, I think... loved my job. I taught in Atlanta, public schools, and thought I would do it forever. And then when my husband and I, who are, we're high school sweethearts, decided to have kids, I shifted to homeschooling. And that's been like a second career. What grade level did you teach? Or did I, did I miss that? No, that's okay. I taught kindergarten, and I, I loved kindergarten. it. Well, that makes you they, that would make you a great homeschool teacher right off the bat because you relate well to kids anyway, and you would relate more to your own children. You know, you would think so. You would think that being a teacher would be the best training for being a homeschool mom. It's actually really difficult to make that transition because homeschooling oh. isn't just school at home. It's really it's it's very relational, and of course, if you've ever tried to help your kids with homework, you know that that it's not always easy to be your kid's teacher. So I had to unlearn a lot of the things that I learned teaching in the classroom. I guess the main benefit of being a teacher is that I got to practice on all those other people's children and make a lot of mistakes before I had my own. So I, you know, that was definitely beneficial. I would think so, yeah. It, um, did, did you teach your kids a language? Uh, they grew up hearing some French and some Spanish. Um, Unfortunately, this is the thing, like when you're homeschooling, your kids don't always want the gifts that you have to give. It wasn't until we started traveling that they really felt motivated to learn. Totally you know, sure. otherwise you're just cracking the whip, you know. So. But, you know, I, I took four years of French. I probably remember mm -hmm. 10 words. It's one of those things I understand. It's kind of, uh, I know that uh, I'm, we're, my wife and I are trying to get back into French because we want to travel there ourselves. Here, we were going to do it. To two years ago, 2020, actually, we had planned to go to France for our anniversary, and COVID kind of put a kibosh on that, so it's been delayed, and unfortunately, we put the book back down, so I'm back down to the 10 words. <laughs> well, it's amazing. I think your brain your brain has it stored somewhere, and if you're surrounded with it, it it'll come back. Might pop it back in there. We hope. We hope. Um, you have a very, very unique story in regard to, well, you mentioned, well, let me back this up. I'm sorry. So you, you, you married your high school sweetheart and you just celebrated your silver anniversary. Um, we did. So congratulations on that. Uh, kudos for that as well, because in this day and age, it's very difficult uh, for people to, uh, to stay together that long, actually. So another well done. Um, so you've got a lot, you've got a lot to share with, 
with this, our audience because you have accomplished many things in life that you can pass on that wisdom. Uh, it's funny because I think we define success differently in our lives. And I think if you had asked me 25 or 30 years ago how I defined success, it is very, very different than how I define it now. And I appreciate that you saying that staying married is an accomplishment and homeschooling your kids is an accomplishment because they aren't necessarily things that are celebrated uh, out loud sometimes in our mm -hmm. culture. And so it's it's good to remember that even though I don't really make money because I have chosen to stay at home with my kids, sometimes if we tie up our worth in our, you know, in our income or in our billable hours, then by that valuation, I'm not worth very much. But if you count it by love and energy, then, you know, I'm extremely wealthy. Love, love and health make wealth. Mm -hmm. Love and health make wealth. Um, let's back up just a little bit if we don't, if you don't mind. Um, you had an incident uh, when you were around 20 years old uh, driving down a mountain road. I, I've driven down many mountain roads in Colorado. Um, I don't know where this was that you had done, but I know winding roads can uh, be very um, mesmerizing and you fell asleep. Can we talk about that? Yeah, I sometimes shorten the story for the sake of, of storytelling, but I will give you the, the whole skinny. It was right around finals time. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, and so I had a car there, and I was often asked to take people to the airport. So it was just after finals, winter break was coming up. A friend of mine needed a ride to the airport. Her flight left really early, like seven in the morning, which would mean leaving Middlebury around five and driving up to Bur Burlington, Vermont. And I have a propensity for falling asleep in the cars. Certainly around finals, we had all been up late studying and I knew it was kind of dangerous to go alone. So I brought a friend with me to kind of prevent any accident. And so on the way up, I was fine. We dropped off my friend. On the way back, I started to get sleepy about halfway back to Middlebury. Uh, I pulled the car over. I asked my friend Annie to drive. And so we switched places and then continued on our way and I fell asleep in the passenger seat. So the story is actually even more amazing than if, you know, if God had called me from the driver's seat, I was actually asleep in the passenger seat. My friend Annie was coming around a curve. So, you know, tiny mountain road, it's mountain on one side, drop off on the other side, semi truck coming around that curve. Uh, I heard, all I heard from my perspective, all I heard was, Tanya, wake up. And then I snapped to attention. I saw that we were in the wrong lane. I shouted Annie's name. She pulled the car right back into our lane. And then around the next, you know, scenic overlook, she just pulled over. And we were both, you know, laughing and crying and <laughs> breathing fast and having a little bit of an adrenaline rush, trying to debrief. And I just said, thank God. God, you called my name. And Annie looks at me and she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I fell asleep. I didn't call your name. We, I was going to get us in a horrible accident. And I got really quiet and I thought, well, who woke me up? So that was, I was at a really critical point in my spiritual journey then because I had been raised in a kind of a weird, very religious household more not the household wasn't religious it was the church that we went to um and i had kind of rejected uh, religion i was really searching for what was real and what was true and college is a great time to do that but i was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. you know sometimes we reject religion and and god gets kind of tossed out the window and i've come to realize that i can have a relationship with god and uh, have disorganized religion, which I much prefer to organized religion. So that was a really amazing moment because I was at the point of like, well, maybe God is not real. Maybe the Bible is an edited book. Maybe we've, you know, human beings have this need for religion, but maybe we've made it all up. And at the point that he called my name, I then could no longer say, this is not real. Something is real. Someone is there and someone who intervened. I mean, lots mm -hmm. of us maybe believe that there's something out there or that we're not here by accident or, you know, the, that 
God set creation in, you know, in motion and then leaves us here. And I, I couldn't say any of those things. Someone was there and someone called my name and I had a reason to be here. And I, I didn't want to waste my life. I, I felt like there was, that it has a meaning and purpose and it really, really changed the way that I approach life. Well, I mean, it, it's, I think we, we call it in a, some way, well, I would call it kind of an awakening. I grew up in a very strict uh, Catholic environment. My mother was extreme Catholic and I am now a reformed Catholic. I don't necessarily believe in re, uh, organized religion. And although I've tried everything. I've heard people say recovering Catholic. Or recovering. <laughs> 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 I'm going to have to borrow that one. <laughs> uh, I'm a recovering cat. I like that one better. Yes. Not reformed, recovering. Um, it wasn't even a 12, well, kind of a 12-step program. Um, kind of. But yeah, I, uh, you know, uh, my mother, I found them, and this might be off the subject a little bit, but still kind of pertaining to our conversation. It, it's interesting because my parents got divorced when I was when I was very young, like eight or nine years old, and um, my mother was very Catholic, and the church kind of excommunicated her for getting a divorce, and then couldn't take communion, and um, us kids couldn't either, and the kids couldn't come into church with her, and this kind of thing. I found that to be very hypocritical, even at that age. I was like I was nine or ten years old, and I thought, yeah, that's sad. That's very hypocritical, and that's not what a church is supposed to do. You're supposed to have a community there that you can rely on, and life happens. Some people get divorced because they can't live together. And, you know, it it kind of turned my eye to seeking, seeking different things. And then my mother took us to uh, every other Presbyterian, uh, Baptist, Southern Baptist, Nazarene, everything except for um, a Mormon because you— really couldn't step foot in a Mormon church unless you were actually Mormon. But she tried everything else. And the thing that I found and the commonality that I found within that is every one of them had a different Bible. Southern Baptist yeah. has a different Bible. They, I mean, it's the same Bible theoretically, but there are things that are in the Bible that were removed or fit within that particular religion. Right. It was very right. The idea that there's this eternal word of God, but that you have some control over what you make it say, I guess. Yeah, that, yeah. It, in it, in it, to me, um, I'm a very spiritual individual. I believe in God, I believe in angels, and um, but I don't go to church, and I believe I don't have to go to church to to uh, talk to God. I can talk to him anytime I want. Um, I'd agree with that, and he can talk to you too. <laughs> exactly, like he did for you. Luckily, uh, yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> obviously, if you if the the outcome, but I was a traffic investigator, and I worked a mountain pass, and coming mm. down um, something like that, um, the the sidewall on one side and the creek bed and, and three four hundred feet on the second side, mm -hmm. there's not a good outcome. Mm -mm. on that uh, typically so from that perspective obviously you know there was a bigger plan for you which um, uh, I'm sure that you're very very grateful that you get put on that plan because you look at you you you're married you have kids you have five kids you you've traveled the world with your husband and created a wonderful life and you inspire motivate and educate people with your writings and your your blog that you've been doing for such a long time so yeah it's cool I love it when it is cool. you get those things whispered in your ear or yelled at you, one of the two. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Thank God. I mean, for me, I guess I'm stubborn or deaf or something. Frequently, if I hear that voice, it's loud. It's clear. It's not coming from inside me. It sounds very different than my sort of uh, anxious inner monologue. It's, a, it's an unmistakable voice. I wouldn't say that it's coming in through my ears, but it comes in the form of a voice and in, in words. I mean, I guess I would be shocked. <laughs> Annie didn't hear the voice, so it was loud enough. Well, exactly. If, that, if it was a, an audible voice, it certainly was spoken directly to me. And I've heard it a few times. And it's usually at some pivotal moment when I really needed direction. Let's talk about those. Do you mind talking about those? No, I don't mind talking about it at all. I love moments. talking about it. Let's talk about some pivotal moments. Whoops. Wait a minute. I can cut that out. <laughs> Let's go here. Sure. So, 
I guess it would be helpful to give a little timeline because I can say at what points, you know, God kind of intervened. Uh, so uh, my husband and I were high school sweethearts. We dated long distance in college. And then after college, we got back together again and decided to get married. And we uh, got married and then had a couple of kids and we were yuppies in Atlanta. And there've been a couple of times in that early period where I heard God's voice. One time I was going for a long walk just around our neighborhood and I witnessed a car accident and uh, just kind of up ahead of me. And I saw the a woman get out of the car and kind of sit on the edge of the sidewalk. And I heard a voice saying, go sit down with that woman and pray with her. And it was so uncomfortable. I didn't actually want to do that. I know that that seems like a kind, compassionate thing that you could do for someone who had been in an accident, but I was still afraid that she was going to think that I was some religious nut or that just, I thought that it was going to be super awkward. Or what if she rejected me? You know, we have all these objections when God speaks to us. I think sometimes we turn a deaf ear because we think that idea is ridiculous. I, I reject it. But having grown accustomed to that voice, I did what it said, even though it was uncomfortable. And I sat down on the sidewalk next to her and prayed with her. And there've been other times like that where I get some like weird assignment. Uh, there've been a couple of times where I didn't want to do it and I chose not to. One time I was in an airplane and the whole time I was sitting next to this girl, my heart was like on fire. God was saying like, just speak to her. And I'm arguing you know, inside my own head, I'm like, well, she's clearly reading her book. She doesn't, she doesn't want the chatty Kathy next to her. And he insistently said, really, you really need to talk to her. And about 30 minutes before the plane landed, she put down her magazine and I saw an opening. And then in the next 30 minutes, she pours out this life story. This happens to me all the time where people, I must have a, I don't know, vulnerable a, written a on my face or something. People are always telling me these, these stories she tells me her life story and I'm, you know, sitting in the airplane seat crying and we now have, and then the sign comes on, fasten your seatbelts, we're getting ready to land. And I realize, okay, I have 10 minutes to speak some word to this poor soul, but we'd had two hours. If I had just, you know, broken the ice two hours before we would have had that time where I could have just, you know, shown her a little love and compassion. And I got off the airplane and I was crying. I just cried buckets. I I'm crying just thinking about it that I had the opportunity, I was given an assignment. It was it was like a privilege to do this thing. And I had said, no, I, I don't really feel like it today. I'm sure that, that God can speak to her in other ways. He didn't need me to do that assignment, but I had the opportunity to do it and I chose not to. And I also lost the blessing. So I guess knowing what that feels like when I say no or when I ignore it, I just don't ignore that voice. If I think of somebody and they come to mind two or three times, I call them because I assume that somewhere across time and space, they need me or they're struggling with something. And I'll call someone up and they'll out of the blue and they'll say, I don't know how you knew to call me. You know, I'm, I'm having this major catastrophe. And then I have the chance to pray with them on the phone or whatever. I just, I guess I've gotten to where I listen closely and I expect God to speak to me. And I don't, really expect it to be comfortable because lots and lots of times he's spoken and it was not comfortable. When my husband and I decided that we wanted to go sailing and rejected the American dream and the yuppie lifestyle, which is a whole long story. I don't know how much of that story you want, but when we had decided to do that and we had begun to look at boats, uh, we went and looked at this old, bad smelling, you know, needed a lot of work kind of boat. I stepped down into the companionway, you know, when the smell of must and diesel fuel kind of wafts up in your face, I heard that voice again and it said, take a look at your future. And I'm looking at this old boat and I'm like, oh no, 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 I do not want to live like this. This is not my idea of an adventure. Like I do not want this old boat. Um, and I realized looking back on it, it was kind of a heads up. It wasn't necessarily you two are supposed to buy this boat and sail away in it. It was more a, a heads up and prepare yourself because this dream that you have, it's going to happen. It might not happen in the way that you thought, or it might not happen in the timeline that you thought, but someday you are going to find yourself, you know, standing in the galley of a boat. 
and that did come to pass. It, it took a while, like uh, like 15 years, roughly, from when we got married to when we uh, sailed away. That's in itself is an amazing journey. What can I ask? What motivated you guys uh, towards sailing in a boat? Because gr obviously, growing up and being born in Colorado, and then when you moved to college, it's kind of a mountainous area down there too, isn't it? Uh. Yeah. I mean, I love the mountains, but I, it wasn't until we moved to Florida when I was about 12 that I realized that I'm a water person at heart. I love the ocean. I don't think I could ever live very far from a big body of water. I find it, uh, it can be both thrilling and peaceful depending on the sea state, but I just can't, I can't live far from the water. I really, really love it. The ocean is a kindred spirit. I think we all have a connection to the ocean in some form or another. My wife loves the ocean. She was born in California. She grew mm -hmm. up in Estes Park, Colorado. But, um, and of course, we lived there when, when we got married. But uh, she loves the water. And I finally, finally, during our last anniversary here, celebrating the kids and our anniversary, <clears throat> excuse me, the kids' birthdays and our anniversary, I bought a whale watching trip and I convinced her to come on. Wonderful. On a boat, and she kind of got on there and went, well, this isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. She was going, I really like this. And yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. The thing that we did probably wouldn't appeal to everyone. You have to have a few things. Uh, you have to be very determined and indomitable, and you have to really love the water. And you have to have a sense of adventure. I mean, a lot of people do what we do. They just do it you know, maybe in a land yacht. So we meet a lot of kindred spirits who mm -hmm. are RV nomads or backpackers or uh, I guess the new thing is world schooling. So families who um, save a bunch of money and then travel somewhere and live somewhere in another country for a while and, and kind of travel the world that way. So there's lots and lots of ways to do what we did. My husband was sanding the bottom of his dad's boat the summer that we fell in love. We were 17. And he was a sailor and he used to race sailboats on the weekends. And so sailing was a part of his life and he had grown up sailing and we became very close with his family and his dad and stepmom still own a boat. And we, we meet them places, uh, in 2020 for Thanksgiving, we met in Charlotte Harbor and we rafted the two boats together and we had Thanksgiving, a floating Thanksgiving. And oh, we've done that a few cool. times with them in the past. So it's a dream that we all share. Uh, when we were newlyweds, we took a trip with them, and as always happens on a boat, it's both magical and terrible. You know, there were storms at sea, and then there were gorgeous starlit nights and phosphorescence in the water. We had kind of the full gamut, and we had sailed from Naples to the Dry Tortugas National Park and Key West and back, and on the way back, something broke. I bear a little bit of responsibility. I may or may not have <laughs> broken something, and then they couldn't get the uh, engine back in gear. And we ended up having this amazing night sail back to Naples, and it was just very calm seas. I think if it had been a stormy night, my whole life might be a different picture. But it had been a, it was a beautiful night, and I got the sailing bug, and I kind of just sat up all night long with Jay's dad, and I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. And so, oh, you know, when, cool. when we got tired of the American dream because it was unfulfilling and unsatisfying, we were successful in the way that many people measure success, but we were bored. And, you know, the rest of our lives, it looked like it was just going to be work harder, make a big, you know, make more money, get a bigger house, get more cars. It, it was, and then, you know, and then maybe you get to travel before you die. And that formula looked really awful to us. So we said, let's travel while we're young and let's take our kids on an adventure. And this was a way to take kids on an adventure that appealed to my husband. And quite frankly, once we had a big family, I can't even imagine what travel would have cost if we'd tried to fly or rent houses in all the places that we've been. So having mm -hmm. your house on your back really makes sense. So we know big families that do RVs and things like that, but, but we loved the water. So we chose a water adventure. You know, personally, I, 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 that is, I think I would have more gone towards your path than, I love traveling. I've visited a whole bunch of the states, but um, I've been to London, I've been to, you know, Mexico and Hawaii and, and blah, blah, blah. But doing it the way you're doing it, I think uh, I can never be um, 
uh, an RV nomad. I, I've interviewed a couple people that were, they call themselves van, van nomads. Uh, mm-hmm. I could not do that, I don't believe. But something like what you did, I think that would be like a fantastic opportunity. To me, it be, would be better. But at the same time, like I said, I've been out on the ocean and 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 I do understand what you're saying. You can look up and see. You, you don't understand the immense amount of universe until you're out in an area where you can look up and see that universe. That's a that's a really magical part of our lives. Uh, it it's very very special when you're out in the middle of the ocean and you can't see land, and you feel so small. I mean, you know that you are just a speck on a speck on a speck in the universe. But at the same time, you also feel so seen. And I don't know if that's because I have a sense of God's presence already, or if I would have gained that from being out on the water. But I had this sense that despite the fact that I am a speck on a speck on a speck, he can see me and he cares about me. And we had a night, a really, really rough night at sea. And I mean, I don't know that I've ever been so miserable and wanted off the boat. I wanted off the ride. You know, imagine a roller coaster that doesn't end for eight days. And it it was just a rough night. And I didn't get enough sleep the night before because we're on watch all the time. You know, my husband and I tag teaming. One of us is on duty with the kids. One of us is on duty with the boat. You're watching the sails. You're watching the wind. You're watching for other ships. You're trying to make sure you don't run into anything. And the weather's rough. And so you go from, you know, longer watches to short watches. And I'm just sitting at the helm station crying. I'm never a mess when we're sailing. Normally I'm really happy, but I was so tired and stressed out and physically uncomfortable because of the motion of the boat and afraid, really so afraid sometimes out on the ocean. And I was crying and my husband came up for his watch and he's like, what is wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. I just want off the boat. And the only way to get off is to go swimming. (laughs) You know, like I'm not suicidal, so I wasn't going to jump off the boat, but it was just so awful. I felt so trapped. And he was like, go find a quiet corner to curl up in. I'll take the boat. Don't worry about me. And I curled up in a little corner and it was so hard to get comfortable. You know, your body is being moved around on the boat and the boat is actually fine. We were not in any danger. It was you know, mostly psychological stress. And I find this quiet corner and I wedge myself in there and I squeeze my eyes shut. And of course you can't sleep. You know, you'll be sitting on watch looking at the horizon every 10 minutes and you're nodding off. And then the minute that you're off watch, you're wide awake and you can't sleep. That's the way it always happens. (laughs) Yes, of course. So I'm all curled up in this corner, like a little baby crying and, you know, curled up in a little ball. And I hear this voice that I recognize at this point in my life. And it just says very simply, look up. And I'm like, what do you mean look up? I'm always arguing, right? Like, what do you mean look up? Why do, why do I even listen to you? And I open my eyes, I peek over my shoulder and there's dark storm clouds all around us. And the wave is, the waves are pushing us in every direction and it's very windy and we're moving really fast. And And then in the clouds, I see this tiny, tiny window where the clouds have parted. And there is just like, I don't know, a tiny window of stars in between these clouds. And I get this sense immediately of like calm, completely calm. I stop freaking out. I can feel that my heart rate is coming down. I'm breathing again. And I start to realize, okay, somewhere outside of my little unpleasant circumstance, the entire universe is going on like clockwork. It's it's fine. I'm going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And I can stop freaking out now. And then I fell asleep. And this is the way that I say, I'm looking at the stars and I realize that I'm nothing. I'm less than nothing. And and yet I'm everything because somebody loves me. It's, it's amazing. I can't talk about it without crying. It's very, it's very profound when you have an opportunity to experience that. And I think that, um, especially being out there, the ocean is, as you know, but for our listeners who have never been out on the ocean, it is a huge, huge, it's almost unexplainable when you're out there. And if you look at it from the sky yeah. and you're above it and you can see, look down there, you're a little tiny boat in the middle of that tiny. mass. And it can be overwhelming. 
It can be, and you can be on a naval ship and it would feel the same way. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it really That's why matter. I say speck on a speck on a speck. I'm just one tiny person on one tiny boat in one tiny patch of the ocean, yep. you know, really on a tiny marble floating in space in a tiny galaxy. And the more you telescope out, the smaller you are. I mean, it goes both directions though, right? Like yeah. one time we were sailing across the Gulf Stream and it was a really nice calm day. And so every opportunity is an opportunity to homeschool. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. Everything's a learning opportunity. So we grab a net and we scoop up some sargasso weed and dump it into this little tank that we had, this little plexiglass tank for collecting critters and observing things. We scoop this bunch of sargasso into the tank and give it a little shake. And you can start to see little critters coming out of the sargasso weed and they're all perfectly camouflaged. There's a tiny seahorse. There's a little crab that lives in this one floating mat of sargasso. Each sargasso bubble that it keeps the seaweed afloat, we looked at it under the microscope. Each tiny bubble of this weed has a tiny crustacean curled up on it, like encrusted. And, you know, we look at algae under the microscope. Sometimes we see algae and we look at it under the microscope and you're looking suddenly at this forest. And in between the trees are these birds that are flying and it's some kind of paramecium or something alive inside something that you're looking infinitesimal. I mean, so you're telescoping and you're microscoping and you realize, I guess we're somewhere in the middle because I'm infinitely small and infinitely large. It definitely cooks your noodle. What amazing, I I can feel that inside. What an amazing opportunity that you're giving your children. Um, It it is, is something that not everybody gets the opportunity to to experience, especially from that perspective in life, in understanding life. And that life starts very, very, very small in some cases, as well as us and larger. And it um, how it all still interconnects. And without each one of those little pieces, each one of those little minute, all the way up to the masses, it, it changes the dynamic if they're not there. Yeah, and I know not all sailors are believers uh, that there's a God or that there's a creator, but I have to tell you that when you see this kind of order in the universe and the kind of beauty and design, mm-hmm. it makes it really hard for me to believe that everything is an accident. It actually, for me, I think it would take more faith to believe that everything is an accident than to believe that someone uh, amazingly intelligent created what we see. And I, I'm not going to define for anyone how he how yeah. he did it. I have no idea. I wasn't there. But there's just no way that I can, I mean, the things that we've seen and the places that we've been that, that if you told me it was an accident, I pretty much would just laugh at you. I mean, I mean, someone can laugh at me and say that I'm delusional, but I have a really lovely delusion and it makes me very happy. And I'll take it any day over believing that everything is an accident and that nothing has meaning and the nihilism that that kind of leads to. You know, I, um, Native Americans have it. um, I used to have a lot, a lot of, I still do have, a lot of Native American friends that are from generations of Native Americans. And, you know, the one thing that uh, I learned from them was that Mother Nature, everything that's around us, the minute little thing, the crustaceans on the algae that you guys picked up and, and the, the seaweed that you guys looked at and all the stuff that were taking place in there, all the way up to the largest mammal, well, the whale, in the ocean or an elephant on land we're all connected and we're all part of this well there's a sense that the earth itself in the way that we are like a planet i'm sorry to interrupt you get get so excited we are ourselves like a planet you know by genetic material we are only about 10 percent human 10 percent or less 90 percent of the human body is by genetic material is something else. I mean, microbes, millions and millions of microbes. So in the same way that we are a planet unto ourselves, our planet itself may very well be a living organism, and we just don't really understand how it works. I mean, I think there's a lot of scientific arrogance that happens, and I prefer humility. I prefer the posture of saying, we just don't know. Well, I know Mother Nature's a little upset. I, I do know that. She's very upset lately because of uh, the way we're treating her. So, um, 
It's hard to see the plastic in the ocean. I think that was something I wasn't really prepared for was how much trash we create. Um, interestingly, I think the countries that actually have more wealth and create the trash uh, do a better job of caring about it. And then the countries that are really where people are living hand to mouth don't and don't have uh, the the wealth or the means to you know control their anything beyond their daily existence do a much worse job of controlling um, climate change and so it's a tricky it's a tricky hard question about what to do and how to fix it or not fix it or but it is hard to watch it's hard to see yeah. you know the detritus of our civilization washed up on a Oceanside Beach in the Bahamas, for example, it's just it's shocking. I think it does lead to behavior change and not everyone can see that perspective the way that we have it. But if they could, a lot of people would really want something different. Make better choices. Um, I yeah. agree with that. It's very uh, it makes me really, really sad. It touches me deep down inside when I see things like that. It just um, I've been a uh, an individual that has been on the side of climate taking care of environmentalist, I guess. Um, in fact, I was part of uh, the first environmental film festival. I'm going to give away part of my age now. 40, about 40 years ago. It's the first yeah. time I ever met Ed Bigley Jr. He was the one that was ahead of it at the time. And um, we, they did a documentary, then a film festival in regard to the environment. And it really opened my eyes up at that time too because they had... Not the same kind of technology ability that they have now to be able to show more in depth of what's taking place. And at that time, they didn't have, you can video much easier than you can now. And some of these areas that um, they were at, they had to haul in camera equipment and, you know, things like that to get it documented. But yeah, it really, it really put me on a different path. Um, well, you cannot you cannot protect what you do not love, and you cannot love what you where where you do not spend time. And so, if yeah. you spend time outside, you spend time, and if you live close to nature, then you care about it. You care yeah. about it more. It's like a family, and it yeah. changes your behavior. And actually, you know, a lot of environmentalism is talk and not a lot of action. And action meaning every individual human being yeah. and governments holding other holding businesses you know accountable holding them accountable yeah. it's a big problem it's not our only problem but it's a big problem it is not i'm going to have a conversation with an individual that deals with climate change and environmentalism um here in the next six weeks so i'm hoping that will excellent well we should open. leave that one to the experts. i'm sorry i said we should leave that one to the experts yeah, she um, she is, and I, I'm excited about the conversation that we're going to have. Um, so, well, there's a prelude to another, and we'll call it a, a teaser for something coming up. Uh, That's right. What's it like living outside the box? I mean, what do you, if I if I may delve into your 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 um, your travels and your living? Um, uh, and again, this is digital, so if we can cut something down, that if we need to. Um, like, what do you guys do for a living? I mean, you don't make a normal living. Like you said, you, you've quit your jobs and you've taken to a, this boat and you've traveled, like, you know, from, from, I would assume from, from the United States all the way over to Europe in, in that sailboat. Um, what do you guys do for a living? What do you do from that perspective? So our unconventional lifestyle actually started before we moved out of the box. We found a book when we were a young couple. Somebody must have given it to us. It was Larry Burkett's Complete Financial Guide for Young Couples. And we were deeply in debt when we got married. We had school debt and car debt and consumer debt and every kind of debt you can imagine. I think probably $50,000 or more in debt. And we were 22. So we faced this monumental task of trying to get ourselves out from under this mountain of debt. And this book really helped us figure out how to do that. And I think we ultimately came up with the idea that we would need, if we wanted to go on an adventure, if we didn't want to be strapped to jobs that we didn't love or a lifestyle that didn't excite us, that we were going to need to get out of debt and to live debt free. And so we started that project 
as 22 year olds and we lived in a dumpy little apartment in Atlanta and we worked really hard. Both of us, I was a school teacher. My husband was, uh, I think at the time, a computer programmer, I guess that would have been his job description. He was a computer guy, self-taught, college dropout, did not need the piece of paper that college offered, but had all the skills that he needed to make a good living. And so we paid off the school debt. Uh, Some of it was forgiven. My part of my debt was forgiven because I taught in a very low income area in Atlanta. And some some of my federal debt got erased in the years that I taught. Uh, We paid off cars. We paid off credit cards. We paid back family. we did everything we could to get out from under the debt and we viewed basically a mortgage as the only acceptable kind of debt because it can also be an investment and so by the time that we bought our house that was all we had was a mortgage and we lived pretty pretty sparsely up until we bought that house and then after that we just chose means and when i quit my teaching job my husband was able to go out on his own and uh, run his own consulting business Uh, Sometimes he had an employer and sometimes he had clients, just depended. And that allowed us to have the life that we wanted even while we were living in the house. And so when it came time to leave Yuppieville, as I call it. Yuppieville, I like that. (laughs) Suburbia, the house with the white picket fence. We drove away from that, you know, off on an adventure, but we were already starting with the mindset of freedom. And being in debt is definitely a kind of slavery. So we we had set ourselves free in that way. And then once you start prying yourself outside the box, it gets easier and easier. So we didn't have any debt. Uh, We didn't have brick and mortar jobs. We kind of stopped going to church. We had been in church. There are things we love about church and there are things we hate about church. But obviously on a boat that gets complicated where we do kind of a, I like to call it the International Church of Pancakes. We do Sunday morning uh, family reading, Bible reading and discussion uh, over pancakes. And that has kind of been our mainstay. We find lots of people who are believers and we have churches about people and not about a building. So that's another way that we pride ourselves out of the box. That's probably the only church I'd go to now. The International Church of Pancakes? Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. It's a good church. I have to say it's a good church. Uh, And then homeschooling was a natural thing because I can't imagine any school that would have put up with our schedule. The year that we bought the boat, we had a seven, six, four, and two-year-old. And we were spending three days on the boat and four days at home. And my oldest would have been in first grade and he was learning to read. And no school would have let me just drop him off for three days a week. So homeschooling was kind of part and parcel with the life that we chose. So, right, so what are the boxes? There's no debt. There's no house. There's no job. There's no church. Uh, We kept our cars, but we parked them at friends' houses. And if we, you know, if we needed a vehicle, we had a vehicle. We have a few things left in storage, but we sold most of our stuff. Um, it's been really good. It's been good. My husband actually has been able to continue working. So it's not true that we didn't, you know, that we stopped working and we are on vacation all the time. Actually, a life on vacation all the time would be very unsatisfying. We've both discovered that we like working. I like teaching the kids. I like baking things from scratch. I like making handmade books. I like learning musical instruments and new languages. Like you need to always have some kind of pursuit to give your life a sense of purpose and direction. And my husband really likes to work. And so he does like, prefers to work for himself. And so he's a self-made man and he uh, has his own business and he is a computer consultant and a database um, consultant. And he's been able to provide for the family and keep paying to fix this old wooden boat for the last 15 years. And that's what's kept the whole operation afloat. But it really does take both of us because Mm -hmm while one of us is, you know, working, the other one is also working, but at different purposes. So I kind of have managed the sphere of home management and child rearing while he has continued to fix the boat and uh, make money to fix the boat. Well, so realistically, when you had that little voice whisper in your ear about um, this is your 
going to be our life, look to the future, it has uh, presented itself as a, a very, very positive option for you and your family. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we had to overcome a lot of things in order to do this. Like, I'm, I'm able to talk to you about it in the past tense. We did it. I feel successful. I can, I can make it sound like it was easy, but I have to tell you, it was damn near impossible. Like, so many obstacles. Fear be being difficult. probably the biggest one. Fear is one of those things that you really have to overcome. And I guess I would say being scared to death, literally, like if you have had a, a brush with your own mortality and you faced the ultimate fear that is, you know, all the other fears are kind of hidden inside that one big fear, the fear of the loss of your own life or the, the loss of yep. someone that you love. If you have faced that fear, it makes all the other ones easier. And it also makes you not waste time because you realize that life is fragile. It could end at any moment. So you had better do something with it right now. And so I think it made us less likely to waste the time that we had. You know, people put things off. You know, a lot of people, we meet a lot mm -hmm. of retired people sailing because they raised their kids and they did the traditional thing and then they go sailing. But we also met people, I mean, we've benefited from, uh, from the, we call them the dead guys. It's not a very nice way to put it, but we're very thankful to the dead guys. We've, uh, you know, been sold things from by widows who are doing estate sales when their husband has have passed away. You know, he had this dinghy that he always wanted to go fishing in, but then he had this heart attack and now she's selling it cheap and she was happy to sell it to us because we were going to be out there using it and doing what, what its intended purpose was. And we see that and we're like, oh, that is so sad. It's so sad that you had this dream and that you never got to do it. Um, and so I guess it. We are being, living the dream for him. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, and there, nothing is wasted ultimately in that way that we're all connected. Nothing is wasted. No pain is wasted. No loss is wasted. It can be recycled. But yeah. it definitely made us live a more vibrant life. That sort of awareness of our own fragility. And but, it made us overcome our fears because it's right. really scary to live uh, counterculture. It's scary to do things that no one else is doing. I mean, if you, we found people that were doing it and we could kind of get advice and model our lives after theirs. But And, and now we hope that we would be in that position that we would say to other people, hey, if you're unhappy, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to keep doing this thing that you're doing. If it makes uh, you happy, fine. Stay in suburbia forever. But if it doesn't, you don't have to do that. I think um, uh, COVID had its benefits and had its disadvantages. One of the benefits that it had, I think, that it really allowed uh, a, a mass amount of individuals that uh, realized that uh, they didn't need to be in that grind. They had like mm -hmm. two or three million people here that you know decided to. I don't. Want, I'm not going to play your game anymore. Um, you know, I I'm tired of the nine to five working for you, um, punching a clock, um, wasting my life. I realized how much I, I didn't need to be there because like my wife worked, well, she works full time and uh, she works for the court system down here in Arizona. And uh, for two and a half years, she got to work from home uh, during the whole thing because they basically shut everything down and they sent people home and um, she works from home. She works part of the educational system for, um, I'm sure you understand this from a teacher perspective, but every year the judges and the probation officers and the, everybody that works in the court system has to be recertified with so much education, continuing education, new laws, laws change, new updates, blah, 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 new procedures go into place, et cetera. Well, she's part of the group that teaches them. So from that perspective, they were able to do it from home. And it reset, it reset our lifestyle back to what we thought it should be. Um, mm -hmm. You know, instead of her hour and 20 minute commute in traffic where everybody's grumpy and blowing horns and accidents everywhere all the time, you turn the TV on before she leaves and there's an accident here, another accident there. You know, you're in the middle of that stop and go stuff for an hour and 20 minutes. You're frustrated by the time you get to work. Then you, you're in a little cubicle and then you spend your eight hours there, and then you fight your way home again. Mm -hmm. It was yeah, we know that life. Yeah, it was interesting because we were able to get up. We didn't have to get up at four in the morning. Uh, 
We got up later, went out on the back porch with a cup of tea with the dog and watched and listened to the birds and looked, played, you know, uh, played with the animals and, and uh, you know, uh, enjoyed nature and watched the sunrise. And then she had a 30-second commute up to where we had her office set up and uh, it worked. And then we had lunch together every day. And when it, it came, it was when her thing was over, 30 second commute to the couch or to the back patio. And uh, it was much more relaxing, much better for us. Um, luckily, she's still working from home two days a week, which, you know, is very beneficial. They've, uh, the state realized that they had more productive and happy people hmm. when they allowed more balance between work and home. Yeah, I was getting ready to say, I think that the pendulum is swinging and it's swinging a little bit wildly right now. So we went from being this sort of like automatons working in cubicles mm -hmm. to everybody on the loose. And now hopefully it's settling down a little bit and maybe maybe a, to a restored balance because not everybody is going to quit everything and right. go live in an RV or live on a boat. Not everybody is going to be able to work full time from home. And some, and to some degree, we still really need community. I think people we do. missed, really learned to appreciate community during, during the pandemic. And I think we will figure out what that means. And I think people were really questioning everything. So I do think that we'll settle into some kind of and some, into some kind of balance because you can't have the whole world going haywire at the same time and you can't have everybody working in a cubicle. cubicle. Like neither of those yeah. are realistic scenarios. Well, and, and it, it, uh, there were some uh, corporations, I know some very large corporations that actually were going, we need to get back to normal, back to normal. And they had a, they had a, a discussion that I was part of actually um, during this little conference thing. And we said, what, what, why isn't this normal? Why isn't a so that's hybrid a really, schedule that's, normal? Yes, that is such a good question to ask. What is normal? And normal simply means this is the norm. This is the yeah. average. This is the the mean that we have. My kids use the word normal in a very derogatory manner. Like if they say that someone is normal, if I say, hey, oh, we met those new people. What do you think? And if they say, oh, they're normal, that means nothing good. That means nothing good. Like <laughs> they would take weird over normal any day. So we get to decide what normal is. Why isn't kindness normal? Why isn't yeah. raising your children normal? Why isn't homeschooling normal? Why isn't travel normal? I mean, I'm I'm able to talk about this because I, I am in a place of privilege where we've been right. able to do this. Not everyone is able to do this. We've seen what life looks like in lots of places we've seen abject poverty i mean what we even what we call poverty here i'm not saying there aren't poor people right. in the united states but i've seen poverty that makes poor people here look wealthy and you realize that what wealth gives you is cho choices and options and that there are people who haul wood every single day they go into the forest and they haul wood we've seen these little mayan ladies in guatemala gathering wood so that they could go home and cook their supper over a fire. I mean, like nothing has changed in thousands and thousands of years. And so I don't take these choices that we've made lightly. They are a huge privilege. And we try not to waste that either, because I do believe that if you've been, you know, to whom more is given, more will be expected. And so I am expected to give something back because I have been given so much. Well, that's a positive thing. How do you think spirituality pertains to all of this, your journey, you know, what you've experienced, what you just said, which is profound. You know, uh, as a police officer, I saw the worst of the worst, even the best people at their worst. I, I have been into poverty sections. I'm, I, I've not been in some of the ones that you have said, but I have um, been in very detrimental, both dysfunctional family perspective and poverty from our perspective from what we we know um and it it gave me a new different perspective on life just within those experiences how does spirituality play into all of this for you so it plays a critical part it's a daily it's not just a daily practice i mean i do get up every morning and i do pray and i actually i'm reading through the bible in a year last year i read war and peace this year i'm tearing through the bible one 
chapter at a time. Uh, so it's a daily practice. It's something that's a part of my everyday life. If I'm struggling with something, I ask for help. I surrender things. I, uh, I listen to that voice when God asks me to do something, I go do it. Um, we try to be generous with not just our, but our time and our energy. That's a really important way to be generous. And, you know, in the, in the bigger picture, I think when you see things, it's hard not to give up hope. It's hard when, you know, we have a, a family member that we love very much and she's very, very ill and is not likely to make it. And it's hard not to give up hope when you see horrific things. It's hard not to give up hope when you see the earth being destroyed or when you see abject poverty or corruption. And I think that my faith helps me not give up hope. On hum humanity as a whole, I kind of am pretty skeptical. I'm, I've become kind of a cynic. But on an individual person-to-person -person basis, I always hope for and look for the best in someone and would hope that I would be able to bring out the best in someone, um, whether that's my kids or someone that I meet or, you know, strangers, friends, family. I would, I would hope that I would be able to love, to give love and receive love which I kind of generally view as the goal of humanity, that if you are raising children, you're raising them to feel loved and to be able to give love in return. And if you can keep your mind focused with faith and hope and love, then some of all of the really hard and horrific stuff fades into the background. It's still there, but it, it isn't your focus. So I guess, my faith, my belief in God, my belief that he loves me, that I'm here for a reason. It brings me so much peace in the middle of hardship and chaos. That's a good positive thing. Uh, I think that uh, we all have to reflect upon where we stand within that arena and really understand that again, like you said earlier, we're part of a part of a, a, a speck on a speck on a on a another speck <laughs> in the middle of all this huge wide universe of opportunity and um yeah but in all of that we're not alone like how amazing alone. is that how amazing is that that you could be basically invisible like if you zoom out enough we are invisible and yet someone calls our name 100 percent, and that's what started you on your journey which is like fantastic let's talk that's a little right. bit more about you know, how to get a hold of somebody that who who wants to do the same thing that you did, that maybe wants to take that leap, wants to pursue their dream, wants to move forward in, in a different, maybe, maybe a unique way, wants to understand more spirituality. You've got two things. You've got a book, and then you've got a, a blog that you do, don't you? Yeah, that's right. And the book, I would say, is not uh, its not a recipe for how to go sailing with your family. It's probably the opposite. Probably half the people who read it would be like, I am never ever going to step foot on a boat with my kids. Um, but I would say that it is full of life lessons that are applicable to people who, who might never go sailing. That uh, each chapter is named for a sailing analogy that we use all the time. Uh, I'm trying to think like ships passing in the night is a chapter about friendship. Uh, close quarters is a chapter about what it means to live in close proximity to your family. But it also is about uh, sort of a bigger life lesson. Uh, close quarters, for example, would be about how to get along with people that, you know, you're with all the time. And everybody can relate to that, not just people who literally have, you know, a cabin next to each other on a on a tiny boat in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, it would be difficult to, to uh, I'm going to leave and take a break here and you can't just step off the boat. <laughs> That's right. You have to develop coping mechanisms. And maybe that's how, you know, Jane and I have stayed married so long. We are, we have this shared dream that we have pursued together and it took all of our energy and time and love and money to keep it, to keep it going. And we take really good care of it because that foundation that we have in, in our relationship makes everything else work. And a boat is kind of an environment that will make or break you. And thank God it made us because we've seen lots of single sailors and it, it could have gone the other way the other way uh i forgot to ask uh how do you how does somebody find you oh excellent um you can find me on the blog at take 2 sailing.com and we've been blogging since 2008 
not just me, but my whole family has written for that blog. And um, any photo that you click in a blog post will take you to our Flickr page and you can look through the photos. And then I'm on Facebook as myself and also Take to Sailing. And you can also read my book, Leaving the Safe Harbor, The Risks and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat. Very good. And that's and available wherever books are sold. It's available at Amazon. And Take to Sailing is spelled out, T-A-K-E-T-W-O. And sailing, S-A-I-L-I-N-G. Um, and I'll make sure that all that gets into the show notes as well so that everybody has a unique way to click right on it and, and go right to where they need to go. Um, Tony, thank you very much for spending the time with me. I know that we had uh, some technical difficulties when we tried to have a conversation before, but it wasn't meant to be at that time, and it was now. That's right. And I was thinking about um, what we talked about at the end of, of our conversation that didn't work out about one more thing before you go. And I was thinking about my mother-in-law who, you know, the, she's a sailor too, and she, uh, she's really, really sick and it's really hard to watch her suffering. And I thought if I could tell her one more thing before I go, what would it be? And you know, all week I couldn't think of a single thing. And I realized that if you have lived your life well, and if you've left nothing unsaid, and if you have spoken words of love to the people that you care for, then there's nothing left unsaid and you're in a sense prepared, you know, at any moment you could be snatched from this earth and your time could be up. And that that is what it means to live a good life and to live without regret is that, you know, if I died tomorrow, I will have died content. And besides telling her that I love her, you know, and, you know, holding her hand to the next leg of her journey, there's nothing left unsaid. So I don't actually have any more things to say before I go. You know, I was going to ask you if you have any words of wisdom, but in a sense, you just said that life can change in an instant and make sure that you have those discussions throughout your yeah. relationship with somebody so that there is le something that left unsaid. And that That's profound. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that with me. I, I It makes me feel good. Um, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing your journey with me today. Thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom and your uh, profound experience that uh, set you on this journey of life and sharing. And uh, I look forward to having a conversation with you down the road. Well, thank you for asking the deep questions and the talking about the things that really matter. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.